Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are dear to the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to ANUS, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. This is a 10-part series of conversations with Haval Farat, Haval Tekushin and friends from a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Kwamizlo. These conversations provide an insight into how they are organising their society, how they are making decisions and how they are defending their zone from aggression from some of the most powerful military empires on the planet. We are confident you will find this series exceptionally interesting, but more importantly, it is the type of news we need today in order to ensure that here in Australia, we continue to act up to create that new society based on egalitarian principles in our heart. Well, here we are. This is session three with a diplomacy uh, civil centre in the autonomous administration of North and East Syria. And we're speaking to Tekashen. Uh, directly from this autonomous zone, stuck between Syria and Turkey, and uh, which most of you have heard about. This is the third program, hopefully of a 10-program series. We'll see how we go. And uh, it's fascinating to see concepts which most many radicals in Australia kind of play with intellectually and sometimes physically um, being put into action in what is a war zone. Tetchison, hello. Hi, how are you doing? Good. So what would you like to discuss today? Um, probably a number of things. Uh, first, apologies that we've not had time to organise it too well because there's lots of problems here at the moment. We're um, preparing for a potential Turkish invasion. Um, we, we've been hit by, by uh, COVID as well, so this makes everything very difficult here, but I'd certainly like to talk about uh, the situation with the uh, defence and military and how that works here. Great. Could you just, just uh, update us? Who are your neighbours and do you have any friendly neighbours? You mean in, in terms of countries? In terms so, of geographical uh, boundaries, yeah. Yeah. So, no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, you've got Syria on one side, Turkey on the other, and there's another neighbour. Is there a third force or not? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yes. So I assume. Um, yeah. We, well, why haven't you don't have any friends? You don't have. So <laughs> why why haven't why haven't you been overrun? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so there's not only Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. There's also the concept of Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. Um, now Kurdistan stretches across uh, those three countries and Iraq. And the center of Kurdistan is the center of those four country complexes. So um, actually what you find at those borders, because you're still in Kurdistan and they are um, 
quite often Kurdish people, not always, but people who are friendly with um, the Kurdish culture, you can cross the border anyway. So um, there is a kind of cultural, political concept of Kurdistan there. Um, so the northern Kurdistan, which is in Turkey, is called Bakr. That's the Kurdish word for north. The southern uh, Kurdistan is called Bashar, which is Kurdish for south, you might have guessed already. And that's, that's Iraq. That's northern Iraq. And it's also called the KRG. And what's happened is that the international community and Iraq have granted um, the Kurdistan Iraqi area as a sort of autonomous political, economic, social autonomous zone for uh, Kurdish people. So it's kind of the closest to a Kurdish nation state that there is. And that's, that's to our east. Now, for quite a long time, obviously, we're, we're to the west, and we're called Rojava, which is west for, in Kurdish. Um, we're, we don't have a nation state. Um, and we have uh, a specific ideology, which is very different to the sort of uh, top-down kind of democracy that you see in a lot of places in the world, in the West. Um, Bashur was a friendly border with us, so we could cross, we could go east and people could come from, um, come from the east, which is Bashur, because it was friendly. However, it's a nation state system uh, it's a petrochemical giant. Um, the nation state, it uses the democratic systems that you're used to in Australia, and it has become controlled by one family, the Barzani family. Um, that, that system has developed its ties with Turkey very much economically. So there's a lot of uh, Turkish business happening in Bashur. Um, and it's the two nation states tied together um, and Turkey has developed military bases now in Bashur um, and because of these developments and because of the let's say propaganda uh, towards the people in Bashur uh, that area of Kurdistan has now become less friendly to Rojava even though they're both in Kurdistan. Um, and the border crossing has become very difficult for us. It was our only way in and out of Rojava. Um, and to leave Rojava now is becoming increasingly difficult. You, you, obviously, we cannot leave to the north to mm -hmm. go to Turkey. We cannot leave to the south to go to the Syrian regime area. Uh, we cannot leave to the west because Turkey has um, invaded and occupied the west of Rojava. Mm. Um, sorry, I should be saying Anes all the time. Anes is the new name for Rojava. Yeah, administration. Yeah. Now, now, getting, now, so obviously not a nation state, but do you have fixed geographical boundaries? Yes, but we have a different conceptualization of what those mean. So, what does it mean in, in, uh, in uh, the autonomous? Uh, administration's uh, eyes what does it mean does it mean you've kind of got border points or is it a f kind of a porous border 
Um, well, firstly, it's not really the autonomous administration's eyes. They're, they're not the ones who make that decision. Right. Um, I think, you know, you, I, you probably meant this, actually. But, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the society here, their eyes. Mm. Um, the, um, and they kind of, you know, social construct these concepts. And because it's being socially constructed, it's in a state of change what all these things mean. So the concept of democracy is in a state of change here. And, you know, when you walk down the street and you ask people about the borders, about nation states, because I've done this, you know, I specifically walk down the street, I sit and have a tea and I ask every household down the street because they're all sitting outside and they won't let you go past anyway. They demand tea with you and, you know, to try to be curious about you. So you can ask these questions and it's fantastically interesting. So, but I mean, the first family they were sitting there and they said we need to rejoin syria and become syrian nation again so <laughs> um this was a kurdish family the next one was that they regard a nation as more of a moral ideological concept not a geographical one mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the ideological revolutionaries here uh it's, it's, I want to emphasise that it's moving and changing, so there's lots of different opinions. Yeah, so, 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 so what would you defend then? Or if you would defend... I mean, you said you've got a very complex kind of uh, armed network. Could you explain what that, how that network functions and what its role is in society? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so there are borders... They are defended. They are lines in the ground. And yeah, we get very worried if people we don't know cross them with guns. So, um, right. yes, and we have okay. a defense. Yep. <laughs> so, yes, there are borders in that sense, certainly. Um, so, uh, I just want to say uh, our friend Hilal Ferhat has arrived, who has been here longer than me as well. Uh, hello, hello, Ferhat. Ferhat. Okay. Uh, just heard him there. Just heard his voice. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll just repeat the question to him. Right. And then we'll go through. So the cousin designing Sistema Askari Diver, Sistema Parastin, Chawa, Chawa Pesh Peshket, G or Chawa Chawa Parastin. Um, is it, is it this bit? Okay, so um, this is my wonderful Kurdish, by the way. I've been here a year and a half. Yeah, it's as good as my, as good as my French. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, there is the Yapi game, which is the defense of the people, roughly translated, the t- togetherness for the defense of the people. There's Yapi J which is the woman's army. Um, so this is togetherness, defense, woman, like literally word to word translated. Um, and there are enormous number of other military uh, units as well. So there's a Hapijay, which is the community defense unit. So these are militias in, when I say militia, by the way, uh, it maybe has some negative con- connotations in the English language. Uh, that's not implied here. Mm-hmm. It just means people getting together in community. 
defend themselves. It's not a negative thing. So these are community militias. Uh, they arm themselves and they're much more in their community for defending it. Um, there are Syriac forces. I'm looking at about that when I say this, by the way, and I'm, I'm sort of asking them as a question. So the Syriac forces, there are Arab forces. Um, these are still part of the general army, if you like. Um, just get in here. Gruba Asaish, so there's Asaish. Now, uh, we would be tempted to say that this is the police, um, but the truth is there are, there are a group of people that have quite a lot of roles. One of them is that they go into the community actively and try and help solve things, uh, you know, solving difficulties in communities. I don't mean arriving as police to solve them, but they, um, they also carry out what could be viewed as military work as well. So, for example, uh, one of the Assage commanders was murdered at a checkpoint by the Syrian, a Syrian regime affiliated group in Kamishlov. The Assage, it was the third time, and the third time they'd refused to hand over the murderer. Um, and the Assage then launched a military uh, operation and removed the entire Syrian regime group from Kamishlov in an armed conflict that was actually right next to the civil diplomacy center. Mm. Um, and I was driving in my car through it at the time. Um, and about 10 people died, but they moved through that area of the city, removing them. So, um, yeah, uh, their, their remit and the role, they take a license from Anis to be able to carry out this sort of work of solving problems in the community, but also you know, there's some military work there, just like these other military groups do. Um, and then there's the Kassadeh, SDF. Now, SDF means Syrian Defense Forces. This is a umbrella group, but um, there are important subtleties in what that actually means. So we have a multi-ethnic society. We want a multi-ethnic society. And that means that we devolve uh, an enormous amount of autonomy uh, and rights to be ethnic groups, to these. And that includes defense. That's why there are, there, you know, you'll go down the road to the next city there'll be maybe a majority Arab population and they'll have their own organized autonomous Arab forces there. And that's fine. We, that's, that's part of the ideology. So the SDF, whilst they're an umbrella group for that, the concept of authority over these diverse forces is maybe a little bit different. Uh,
So, sorry, um, they, there is an authority structure in the military there. They do have control. Before, it was just the Yapigay and the Yapigay. And people understood that this, these were Kurdish-controlled armies. And indeed, at the beginning of the revolution, a lot came from the Kurdish community. But you understand that we've moved to the concept of Anes now. This is no longer a Kurdish revolution. It's, it's meant to be a completely equal multi-ethnic revolution. So the SDF formed, and the SDF are a, an official force. By official, I mean they're recognized by the nation states of the world. They work with the American uh, and various coalition forces here in the, in the fight against ISIS and things like that. So they're official in that sense. Now, uh, the SDF is not a Kurdish concept, it's a general concept. And they do have control over the various military councils in, um, in uh, Anes. I'm trying not to say Rojava is getting out of it. Can, 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 uh, can you explain, can you explain a, a military council? How, how is that formed and what function does it have? I assume it's a decentralised network of councils, is it? Yes, but it is centrally controlled. So yes. what I was trying to say earlier yeah. is, is central control, that they can command. Right. Such, you know. okay. Syriac, Syriac Military Council Committee. Uh, okay, so there's three. So every city has uh, a military council, mm -hmm. and the three ethnic groups have military councils. The, Kur the Kurdish uh, community doesn't have a military council. Would you begin, El Yeah, right. 
tal. E aqui, Harry Green, Harry Nelson, Kurde, Ok. Um, so, actually, I'm learning things from Pebel Ferhat here. It's fantastically interesting. So, um, it's important that the people defend themselves here. Right. It's, it's a power. Um, and every city has its own military defense council. Um, and each city, like Kamishlo, where we are today, um, these military defense councils have every ethnic group involved in them for defending the city. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, so these these city military councils have the autonomy and authority to take active military action when the city is attacked. Hevel uh, Ferhat is saying that Turkey, their propaganda is that they are fighting Kurds and that the, 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 the army here is a Kurdish army and it's controlled by SDF, which is a Kurdish concept. And of course, that's not true. Uh, you can really see that throughout all the decision-making structures and armies here and everything, that it's, it's very much a togetherness of ethnic groups that defend themselves against uh, Turkish and Syrian aggression. Yeah. So I assume I would like you'd like I would like to give some quotes from the military, mm -hmm. if I may. Yep. Uh, sorry, did you have a question related to that? No, no give the ask. quotes and then I'll I'll ask the question. So if, if I can remember them um, at this stage in the morning here, um, as as the cousin got in, um, so we went uh, recently to talk to the head of Yapige um, Media, Hevel um, uh, and it was a fantastically interesting conversation. And he said something that I really, really liked. Um, and it relates to the civil people here as well, not just the way that the military is organized. And he said, we're not, he's, he's sitting there in, in soldiers' fatigues, you know, in a military base. Um, and uh, he said, we're not soldiers, we're just people. Sure, we know how to make war very effectively, but we are not a military. We are just a society of groups of friends who have been forced to defend ourselves together. And I thought that that, um, that statement really chimed with me because when you see the soldiers together, they're not like our image of soldiers in other countries. They're like, they're acting like friends towards each other, smiling and chatting. And it's like, they, they do training, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a very different feeling in right. these military organizations, you know, uh, very different. Right. I, I assume it's, a, it's all a voluntary army at, at every level. No, it isn't. Well, you've um, got, actually, no. So how can you how can you enforce conscription? In, exactly, it's a good question. Uh, I've been wanting to ask this question for a while. I've been aware of conscription. Conscription. Is yeah. Is then Demarques 
he risked that ditching uh, less care feeling. You born, yeah. do sell, say sell. Now, you want to risk that. Let you risk that. Canon, hey, okay. Live up, hey, it's bowing. Yeah, there is conscription here. Um, first, bu, the F, F, G, back there. Jawa bu, bu, kes, piris, de, les, kini, living. Jiba bu, piris, de, no? Ari, very sure, hamu, juan, chun, nash, kari, yo, rejimas. Hmm. Bu, kareti, irish, habu, serko, dama, kes, chun, nash, kari. Kareti, zahmat. Okay, um, so before the revolution, um, there was conscription in Syria, and um, young people so young men only uh, had to conscript to the army. Now, of course, if you were Kurdish, uh, it would be a very horrible experience because there was lots of racial hatred towards the Kurdish people. So when the men went to conscript in the army, um, it was a very difficult time for them. They were supposed to only go for two or three years, but the Syrian regime was capable of making them stay for nine years, 10 years, um, and you know, constantly uh, emotionally and physically attacking them during this time. Um, after the revolution, the conscription continued. Um, but obviously, in a multi-ethnic concept, um, yeah. So it has it has continued. Undoubtedly, it's being talked about now. A much sort of sort of like smaller personal basis in the street. Mm -hmm. uh, when I talk to people about, you know, young men that have finished their conscription, uh, it's obvious that some people don't want to do it, and other people view it as a as a very honourable ideological thing. In terms of how many people are upset about it, how many people aren't, uh, in this society, if people get upset about things, then they generally stop. Um, yeah, but I cannot, I, you know, I can't... No, that's fine, that's fine. I just, I just wanted to think, kind of work out the makeup. Now, I assume, and this is only an assumption, that everybody who wants to be armed in Anis is armed. Is that correct for self-defence reasons? Not just the military, but the civil population? Uh, no, actually, it's not. So, um, who, so who controls the armaments? Yeah. Um Commissioner, 
Um, let eldest year where je asaish. Okay. Yeah. So the asaish. Okay, um, so, <laughs> so interesting enough. Now, of course, always every question in Rajavra, uh, yeah, Anes, every question about Anes, um, there is huge variation. The Asaish have the responsibility of handing out permissions to own handguns and you do need a permit to own a handgun here right in commissioner um but interestingly enough you don't need a permit to own a kalashnikov um, <laughs> <laughs> now well, I assume one's 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 a, one's a hidden weapon. The other one, everybody can see. I exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to part of a ten-part series with the Civil Diplomacy Unit of the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. We're having a conversation with Tekerson and uh, who is uh, a member of the Civil Diplomacy Unit. This is part of the 3CR Acting Up series. My name's Joseph Toscano, and the producer of this program is Kelly Whitworth. So one of the reasons for this is, of course, there's been a war, yes. and there's a huge amount of AK-47s everywhere, yeah. and an enormous number of people have them in their houses. Mm. Um, and like you say, it's not a hidden weapon. It's a weapon that's usually used in times of war. Um, but the pistol, like you say, has a different culture and dynamic around it, not least that it can be hidden. And, yeah, people, the police will stop you. They'll also search your car um here in a you know this is with an attempt to protect cities from people coming in and hurting people of course mm. um they will ask for your um permit if you've got a handgun i've seen that happening um and actually this is this is a moment that i might mention the video we're making soon um for the last two or three weeks we've been working with the assayish because our contacts in America, uh, they're very interested in the society here as well. And one of the things that will not surprise you, they were very interested in how the police are here and comparing it to the American police. Mm. Um, and so we're making a video for them, which we're going to send to them. We spent two days, one with uh, a male police officer and one with a woman police officer, um, following them, them around, doing their duties. And actually, the, the woman, Heval Mariam, she was on um, uh, roadblock duties. So this is people coming into the city uh, and quite often searching their cars, obviously, for bombs and things like this. Um, although the city has been quite safe for a long time, um, none of the Asayish have died in the sorts of attacks that happen at these roadblocks for a long time. Um, but she 
the, in the video, you'll see her taking a handgun out of the car, uh, asking for the permit, checking it and giving it back. So, yeah, you, you definitely need permits for these things. Right now, just getting back, getting back, you're saying that Turkey has invaded part of what was traditionally the ANS's, ANS's um, territory and they're preparing for a, a wider attack with support from uh, other forces. Why, why would they suffer those losses? Because obviously you've got a well-armed society, you've got many layers of military, they're well-trained, they've been through extraordinary uh, situations with ISIS and other groups, and uh, they've come out on top, you've come out on top. So what's in it for them? And how are you going to defend yourselves? This is the million dollar. Yeah, this is the million dollar question. Why would a nation state like Turkey attack us? Yeah. Uh, You're no threat to anybody. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a massive historical question. It's a massive cultural mm-hmm. uh, but has, has Turkey know. has Turkey ever been in control of this area that you're that Anis is now in control of? Uh, maybe a long time in the past. So a hundred years ago, right? There was a convention drawn up by British and French. Said said some better. Senor Chekovna. Yeah, so the British and French drew up the borders between Syria and Turkey. Um, and, you know, nation states yep. are yep. quite focused on territory and their empires. Yeah. But, but, there's always, but there's always a price to pay. I mean, they're not invading some tin pot dictatorship. I mean, people live in, I assume, live where they live under in, in their autonomous administration zone. You know, in North and East Syria, they live there because they like living there. They've lived there. Some have come in recently. Some have been there all the time, and they've got things they want to protect, not just in terms of economic infrastructure and infrastructure, but in terms of um, the development of a different society with different goals and different aims and different objectives. I mean, there's nothing stronger in terms of uh, a self-defence movement. Absolutely, no. You've really hit the nail on the head. Um, and you know, this is the strength of a community, as you said, this is the strength of a community led system. Um, and the Americans, the American military have said that they were incredibly impressed with the way that the military forces were prepared to die to protect, um, uh, Anis. and, you know, any general will tell you if, if the troops are prepared to die to protect then that's an incredible military force that you have there. So Turkey uh, will face heavy losses if they come in, like you say. It's costing them a huge amount of money and their economy is collapsing. You know, Tur- uh, Turkey uh, depends a lot on tourism and that's gone because of COVID. They're also involved in wars with other people. Um, the answer to your question is socially constructed, cultural. I mean, you see the narrative here that there is incredible anger that women have 
defended themselves. That, that seems to cause a huge amount of anger throughout ISIS. Um, and Turkey is, is very much connected in, together with ISIS. Um, a lot of the uh, people coming from around the world would fly into Turkey, uh, I mean, I, as in ISIS fighters, mm -hmm. would fly into Turkey, get up unofficially by the Turkish military, and then chucked across the border into Rojava to carry out um, ISIS raids. So they're very much tied together, Turkey and ISIS. Um, and so it's an ideological thing. It's it's not really for territory. It's an ideological thing. They're right. angry that women have defended themselves. So, obviously, I'm not going to ask for military secrets, but I'm just wondering how yeah. how would the autonomous administration defend itself? How would its various military arms defend itself? You wouldn't have heavy arms and missiles and all that garbage, would you? Um, unfortunately not. No, that's um, what I think, yeah. I think we probably... You know, yeah, I didn't expect we're, so. We're not having yeah. those sorts of things. I don't yeah. think anyone would like, reject the concept of a, a defence missile. Um, yeah. You know, um, we do have heavy weapons. Right. Uh, that's public knowledge. Yes. We produce heavy weapons. Right. Is it is it is it a um, mountainous is it mountainous or flat the area that you, you need to defend? Well, actually, there's two. So there's right. the defence of Anes, which is ridiculously flat. I mean, it's just so flat; it's unreasonable. Um, and obviously, yeah, that has its own military strategies associated with it. I have no idea yes. how they cope with the flatness. Um, and then there's Bakur which is, again, that's northern Kurdistan, uh, eastern Turkey. Um, but it's still Kurdistan. It's got millions of Kurdish people there. And that's where the Kurdish resistance grew from in the 70s, 80s and 90s that kind of was the, the initial uh, burst that caused this revolution. Um, and that's very mountainous and forested. Right. So the, the strategy there are very much more guerrilla. Mm. You get groups of guerrillas moving around in the mountains, taking cover under the trees because the Turkish military, of course, used drones a lot. Um, you know, computerized kidding machines going through the skies. When we were filming the Asayish, and you'll see this in the Asayish film, I'll, I'll send it to you when we finished it. Uh, we follow one of the Asayish around and uh, we went to the site of a bombing. It only happened a few hours before. There's a car, the front of it was a, was a big mess. Um, a drone had just come by. It was outside a disabled people's home. People had become disabled during the war mm. and they bombed it. One drones flying over. And the people here are very scared of those drones because they're completely um, random. They don't hit military targets. They hit hospitals, they hit random cars. You, you just don't know when you're going to be blown up by one of them. And these things are over backward as well. Right. And it's very clear that we we don't have the military ability to, uh, as far as I know, anyway, we don't have the mil military ability to do anything about those. Hmm. And that means that our military is very weak because of our technological disadvantage. We can't fight against the Air Force at all. Um, so our ground forces, you know, are very devoted and 
famously competent at dealing with these issues, but technologically, um, yeah, we have quite a problem. So you spoke about the human cost uh, during the revolution and the defence of Annas during the um, ISIS attempts to overrun it. Could you give, give us an idea of the number of people who were killed defending this area and the number of people who are suffering lifelong disabilities? I think it's 36,000 people, though. 36,000. Yes, no. Let me just check that. That's mm. off the top of my head. Check us. Yes, the chef of ISIS, Je Shorash. Okay. So I think I read somewhere that it was 36,000. Um, Hattie is saying between 15 and 20,000. Mm. So, um, yeah. So, so almost, every, like almost every family is being touched by yeah. this tragedy. Yeah, no, this, this is a constant here. Um, it's rare to meet a family that hasn't lost a daughter or a son or a father or a mother. Um, and these are called shahids. This is the Kurdish word for someone who has died in the war fighting to protect their communities. It's, they're called a shahid. And you have shahid graveyards, shahid licks. Mm. And, um, sorry, the air conditioning has come on then. It's very noisy. Um, yeah, and I've, I've walked around these shahid licks with some of the military commanders that have survived and you know half of the people in the graveyard are their personal friends mm. um and it's a very difficult thing for how they've coped with losing so many friends in this and almost every family you meet has a shahid in it you know and every roundabout here every school every um almost every organization that sets up will be named after one of the people who have died. And the amount of emotion that this community gives to the people who have lost their lives trying to defend it is enormous. They really care about these people. And there's so many events and so many standing up before meetings for a moment of silence to remember those who've um, given their lives. Um, it's, it really hurts people here when someone loses their life in these conflicts. Hmm. So these military units, uh, you, you spoke about, could you just go through, I think it was five groups again, and explain their function? Because I think a lot of people wouldn't understand what each group does and how it's composed. A person, uh, so, um, yeah, the YAPJ is a fairly normal, regular army. Right. And so this is where everybody goes into initially, is it? This is where the conscripts and the volunteers come together in the regular army? Yeah. Yes. Right, OK. Um, yeah, um, the Hapije, um, 
these are the community-based ones, and I've met them, but I don't know much. Happy day, the meaning, the community, the Palestinian community. Now, now they're the so the the happy happy jay uh, are a community based one so in a community or tach neighborhood it's called tach here right. um even when there's a war those military forces remain in their community to right. protect that community and I assume these um, are old, older members of society in comparison to the uh, regular army, which would be a younger group? Wow, very interesting question. I don't know. A person, Nasla Hapije, Kes Kautarin, Anji Diwaninin, Chawain, Je Yapige, Yapige, Belki Diwaninin, U Hapije Kautarin? Okay. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, so the, the community ones are quite often the mothers and fathers in families. And there is uh, as many women involved as there are men. Um, and they have leaders like... Uh, you know, the civilian structures and the yes, military structures yes, yeah. will have lead mm. hierarchies. Um, although the concept of leader is different. Um, yeah, so they, they, they do tend to be older, and you're right, the upper gear and the upper gear do tend to be younger. Right. And uh, are there, is there any other layer we need to know about, military layer, in terms of self-defence? District in Beijing, Nisara yeah, yeah I, I think that's that's it. That's... Yeah, but it's you got everything covered at every level basically, because you've got an integrate. Yeah. You got an look. You don't have a professional military like we do in Australia, where people you know volunteer. You're not totally relying on a conscripted army with a professional cadre. You basically have got a. Um, um, to some degree, a people's-based self-defence system with a, a regular army and, and, and other other sections which um, can be mobilised if necessary. So how, how under threat... Do you, do you have any friends currently? I'm not talking about neighbours. Are there any nation-states, the European Union, anybody interested in ensuring the Turks don't invade or they just want to get rid of you and that's the end of that yeah we don't have too many friends yep. um yeah i mean quite friendly with the zapatistas uh, sorry there was another level i've just realized right. we do need to talk yep. about yep and that's the friends the the organization is called the friends yep um and this revolutionary character and that's probably the most important aspect of all of this. And I, well, I, I, was, that's, I, I, I was being subtle. I knew <laughs> there was the other level, <laughs> but I, I thought maybe you didn't want to speak about it because so, I realised the yeah. friends are the backbone of the whole. Exactly. They're, they're, look, look, like I said last time, during the Spanish Civil War, a million people died. You had the, 
the anarchists in the CNT and then you had the FAI, the Iberian Anarchist yeah. Federation, which were the friends, which kept the CNT ideologically yeah. on a specific path. So, so the friends would be highly trained, but more importantly, highly motivated because they believe in what's happening. Is that correct? Um, it's important to get the right image of the friends mm. because I think when you talk about revolutionary cadre, mm. one can make the mistake of the revolutionary cadres of the past. Yeah, being um, total control, I understand, yeah. Exactly. Well, no, not just that. I mean, the, the friends pervade every organisation in society. So they're, they're, they cut across the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, they, they're very motivated. They're very ideologically trained they're not necessarily highly military trained um they can be civilians anyone can join um you just have to ask to join and you join as an international i can join as well and become a, a candidate now uh, they are especially highly trained if you like this is, seems seems like a bit of an oxymoron in humility um so when they arrive somewhere they arrive very humbly and very non-dominantly it's very important that every cadre is non-dominant so you know it's they're motivated but non-dominant and th this is the backbone so they're very sweet people when they turn up and when they turn up they're now they're now very much involved in the military because we have a problem or a potential problem of invasion they're all organizing but they don't turn up and start shouting ideological commands and orders at people they turn up um, and they try to organise in a very humble and friendly way. This is this is the backbone. This is so, so they're more they're more facilitators than anything else. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good word. Now, it's interesting that we do have a similar situation here in this part of the world. Have you ever heard of the West Papua? I have. Yes. Yeah. Well, the West Papua Independence. I they were colonised by the Dutch for 400 years. Now they've been colonised for the by the Indonesians for, six, for 60 years and they've lost over half a million people during that period from a population of less than 1.5 million. And they're still involved in an active wow. armed and cultural struggle against Indonesians. But in this country here, the word West Papua is never mentioned on the news, never mentioned in Parliament. It just goes on and on in an attempt to appease the Indonesians. And... Uh, we have close contacts with the West Papua Independence Movement and we actually uh, pay for an office which they use as a de facto embassy here in uh, Melbourne. So I can understand, and they have minimal friends, but they've actually been able to break out of that and uh, although they've got no s representation in the UN, they have been able to break out of that isolation. They've got a few Melanesian countries around the place like the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu and Kiribati who are offering some international support. So I'm wondering whether part of your defence system would be looking for organisations to offer support. Not Maybe, maybe not practically, yeah. but in terms of on the world stage. You know, we've just opened an office in Geneva. Right. Actually, there's an NS office in Geneva now. It opened about a month ago. Hmm. Um, our big problem is, of course, we're not formally recognised as a nation. Well, neither are the West Papuans. Yeah, they've never yeah. Been, they've never been formally recognised. They're not formally recognised. But I'm just saying, you can still look for friendship groups around the world. 
And I assume part of the initiative you're doing now to get in touch with people around the world is is part of that offensive, isn't it, to generate support? Absolutely. No, this is is one of the reasons. We want to... Of course, it's a two-way thing. We want to help people understand the third way because we think it's a good one Mm. um, to help people who are... Come on. Um, tell people that, of course, we we need help if, with defence as well. So yes. you're absolutely right. You know, part of this is that. In terms of people selling, sending military force to help us, you'll know that the coalition is here. But as you will also all understand already, the reasons for them being here and their culture and, and all that sort of thing are very complex and related to their own nationalism and their own interests, as well as their there are any ideas they might have of genuinely wanting to help uh, people here. But yeah, there's, we don't have too much help. Um, you know, we'd love to be in a position to provide help as well. There are struggles happening around the world that we're connecting to, but at the moment, you know, we can only talk about our history, our successes, the way that things were achieved to other revolutionary groups to help them in this way. But that's about all we can do at the moment. You know, so yes. for example, yeah. we're very aware of the struggle happening in Burma at the moment, which mm. is very similar to the struggle that happened here. Also in Nigerian Delta, you know, there's very similar struggle, struggles happening mm. um, around the world. Right. So what do you think of your chances as of surviving, surviving as an entity with minimal outside support are? Well, I would uh, uh, Lisa Zoom, Sorry about that. No, of course, we've caused a bit of dissension with that question. <laughs> I yeah, can see yeah. it throwing things uh, around saying how ridiculous. Of course, we're going to survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's you know, but it's difficult to make the calculation. It depends on how many people internationally get involved and right. and want to make that happen. Is you there know, much of an international uh, contribution? People like yourself who've come to the region to assist. Yeah, there's lots of internationals here. Most of them uh, join the army here. Um, there's a big international corps in the upper game and things like this, and a lot of them die, you know. Mm. Um, and that's that's amazing to see. Mostly young people travelling here um, and making that commitment to something they really believe in. It's very touching. Um, I've just remembered another of, of the sayings that I really, really respect from a Yapagay commander. He was um, the first everybody I had when I got here. Heval A. And we went to the Shahidlik, this is the graveyard. And he walked around and half and he said afterwards, half of those people, and we were in the car, and he said this. He said, half of the people lying in that graveyard are my personal friends. All of them were killed by Turkish military and um, Turkish para- paramilitary. He said, I hate them. But I can't hate the Turkish because we cannot go forward 
without them. We are, our, our method of solving this is to work with the Turkish to solve the emotional and cultural problems so we can go forward together. Mm -hmm. I thought that was in very, he's been a soldier his whole life. He's never known anything else. Mm. And despite that, because of his ideological training, he, he understands that we must go forward loving the Turkish, not regarding them as enemies. And he said, you know, another thing he said, when we're in battle, if an enemy soldier puts down their gun, we don't shoot them. And remember that this is also a women's army. So uh, the whole dynamic of the army when it goes into battle, you'll understand that war is an ugly, ugly thing and war crimes are constant, always in war. Um, but we have a women's army and this strong ideology about needing to you know, you can only win the war. This was another thing that someone said that I like. You can only actually win this war if you solve the emotional problems of your enemy. Um, and this is an attitude that pervades the military. Mm. You know, everyone has that attitude. It's very impressive. Well, on that positive note, I think we'll conclude uh, the hour. I'd like to thank you and Ferrat for uh, giving us your valuable time. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you in a week's time. Obviously you're in a difficult situation. We understand if you're not able to continue the interviews and uh, we'll leave it up to you uh, to decide what topic you want to look at next week. Wonderful. It was great talking with you again. Good. Thank you very much. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Spend your Saturday evenings with 3CR. 8pm, Shake, Rattle and Roll, presented by the Rock and Roll Appreciation Society. 9.30pm, Blues with a Feeling, Country and Urban Blues. 11pm, Hillbilly Fever, the place to tune into for the best Hillbilly music in town. That's Saturday evenings on 3CR, 8.55am or via web streaming on 3cr.org.au.